Our sermon text this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians is found in Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. This text is printed for you in the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read along with it there. By way of reminder, remember in the first verse of the letter, um, Paul has identified himself and given his credentials to the Philippian church that he is a bondservant, or more literally, a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus. He has identified his readers as well. He has named them as those who are the holy ones in Christ Jesus, gathered at Philippi. And following that, Paul has given his readers a pastoral blessing drawn from number six, um, but made uh, new in Christ, saying to his readers, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, Paul's conception of his own life and the life of his readers is radically Christ-centered. Everything is dependent upon their union with Jesus. Paul understands himself to be a bondservant or even a slave of Jesus, possessed by Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God, under the command of this Christ. And he sees his readers as those who have been set apart and made holy by this means, by means of their living union with Christ. They are the saints in Christ at Philippi. It is in Jesus that they are made holy and called out by God even as Jesus himself is holy and set apart by God. And then Paul blesses them with grace and peace, but not grace and peace that come to them in some generic way, but grace and peace that comes to them from God the Father through the death, resurrection, and ascended life of Jesus Christ, their Lord. Now in verses 3 to 11, Paul will move into a new part of his letter. He will give thanks for his koinonia, his fellowship with his Philippian brothers and sisters, and he will focus their attention again on Christ, in particular on the future day of Christ, which is to come, the day for which God is preparing both them and us as well, the day of our Lord. <coughs> Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold, even more precious than fine gold. It is sweeter than honey. It is sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. And I encourage you to listen to it now with all of your attention. Paul writes and he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it that we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Every Sunday morning, as we prepare to drink the wine during our celebration of the Lord's Supper at the end of our service, the pastor will say to you, the congregation, Something like this, and now, beloved, let us confess the mystery of our faith. And you respond, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now, in that moment, a lot of beautiful and wonderful things are happening. But at least one of the things that is taking place is this. We are publicly keeping time together as a congregation. We are publicly saying this is what is true about time. We're saying the most important event in past human history, and that part of human history that is behind us, took place when Jesus of Nazareth, who is actually the Son of God, died on a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Christ has died, we say. And we're also keeping time because we're saying the most important thing about this present moment that we live in now is that that same Jesus of Nazareth was raised by his father from the dead and he lives today, now, right at this moment, at his father's hand in heaven. Christ is risen, we say, present tense. And we're keeping time because we're saying we don't know everything about the future. We don't know a lot about the future. But we know this, that one day that same Lord Jesus will come again to judge both the living and the dead, to raise all flesh and to bring about the consummation of all things. Christ will come again, we say. Christ has died. Christ is risen Christ will come again. What we're doing is we're saying this is what is true about time 
itself. And in particular, this is where we are in the passage of time. You see, the way we keep time matters a great deal in terms of the ways that we think about our lives. A pure, purely secular version of time postulates that time is moving forward, but not in any particular way, actually in a pretty arbitrary way. And in any case, one day, far off in the future, time will run out, the sun will eventually die, and life on earth will end. It's quite a despondent way to think about the future and time and meaning, uh, which perhaps has some implication for our present moment. In Eastern thought, by context, uh, time, by contrast, rather, time is a kind of circle, right? It loops back again and again, covering the same ground over and over with no real progress forward. Everything is karma. Everything is a divine loop. Again, not much hope there either. But Christians keep time in a different way. We keep time according to the life and activity of Jesus Christ. This is why time in the West has been measured historically as either being before Christ or in the year of our Lord. And as Christians, we do not believe that time is some kind of circle, a loop that repeats again and again, or that time is a kind of arbitrary countdown to the end of the universe and the extinction of the human race. No, we believe that history and time is moving forward toward a definite conclusion, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of his final appearing. This belief about time is rooted first and foremost in the teaching of Jesus himself. As we heard in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus taught that his father had invested him with both eternal life, he had given Jesus life in himself, and ultimate authority over all creation. And that he would use that authority on the last day when he would raise all humanity from their graves, call all flesh from their tombs, and then bring those who were righteous to the resurrection of the life and the wicked to the resurrection of judgment. This definite conclusion of history that will culminate in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of all humanity by Jesus of Nazareth, the once crucified Jew. This announcement about the end of history, about the future day of Christ, was at the heart of the preaching of the apostles in Acts. You see it again and again. In Acts 10, Peter declares that after his resurrection, Jesus told the disciples, the apostles, to go out and to do this, to, quote, preach to the people and testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. This is what the apostles believed was true, that was verified in the resurrection of Christ. One, that forgiveness of sins was offered in his name. And secondly, that he was the man by which God would one day judge the entire world and all who had ever lived. In Acts 17, one of the most famous sermons preached in all of the scriptures, the final conclusion of that sermon, right? The punchline, so to speak, 
was given in this way. Paul concludes his sermon to the Athenians by declaring, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now this idea that God had fixed a day on which he would judge the world by a man and by a crucified Jewish man at that was perhaps the most dramatically offensive feature of Christian preaching in the ancient world. It made no sense to the people who were there at the time. For both Jews and Gentiles, this was dramatically offensive, this proclamation of the judgment of the world by a man who had been crucified on the cross. And yet the New Testament is absolutely full of this proclamation. As believers, the certain promise of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is one of the most precious parts of the gospel that we possess. And we must not miss the value of this teaching. Right? First, the promise of the day of Jesus gives us confidence about the future. We don't need to be afraid that somehow the human race is going to go extinct or history is going to end prematurely. Because God has promised that time will continue on until it culminates in the appearing of his Son. Secondly, the promise of the day of Jesus Christ gives us hope for the present. There's so much wickedness in the world, so much injustice and evil. It's impossible to imagine how we will ever have the power or wisdom to make things right. But the promise of the day of Christ is that one day... There will be a full and comprehensive reckoning. One day, all humanity will, in fact, be judged for what they have done in the body. And that judgment will be absolutely right and just and good because it will be administered by the Son of God himself. Third, the promise of the day of Jesus Christ gives our lives a telos, a goal, a destination, a trajectory. You see, for the Christian, the last day, the day of Jesus' appearing, is what we are meant to spend all of our lives preparing for. The day of Christ should be regularly, friends, on our mind. For on that day, we have the sure and certain promise that we will give a full account, a comprehensive account to our Lord of what we have done in the body what we have done in our lives. And also a promise that despite our shortcomings, as we give that account, we will experience the final and full vindication of our faith and our righteousness from Jesus himself. In Christ, we will be declared holy. This aspect of the day of Jesus Christ is at the forefront of Paul's mind as he begins his letter to the Philippians. Remember, Paul is an old man when he writes this letter. He is imprisoned in Rome. He's likely chained permanently to a Roman guard. That's how he's writing this letter, with a Roman guard next to him, awaiting a trial for his life. But none of these things is on the forefront of his mind. You see, the most pressing matter for Paul as he begins his letter is not his death. He will talk about that, but not yet. 
First, he needs to speak to the Philippians of the day of Jesus Christ. Paul begins his letter by telling the Philippians how he gives thanks to God for them. How he prays for them with all joy and with gratitude because of their partnership, their koinonia in the Greek, their fellowship with him and the gospel that is the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. He says they have done this from the first day until now. They have shared with him fellowship in the gospel. Paul is reminding the Philippians that their life as a church began, as we read in Acts 16, with the preaching of Paul himself to some women outside the city by the river, and the conversion and baptism of Lydia in response to that preaching, the baptism of Lydia along with her whole household. That was the beginning of the church of Philippi. Since that day, Paul says, you have been sharing fellowship with me as we proclaim the gospel together. I mean, that's fascinating, right? Paul doesn't see himself as the one who is the Philippians are help proclaim the gospel. He's saying we're all doing this together. Together we're proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on to assure the Philippians that they think about their life and the church as a church and the future that lies ahead. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's doing two things here in this verse. First, he's reminding his Philippian readers and us as well that the telos of their lives, the telos of their church and ours, the telos of all human civilization and culture finds its conclusion in the day of Jesus Christ. That is where everything is headed. This, Paul is saying, is where time is rushing forward to, right? This is the great moment that time will go over the fall and down the waterfall, right? The current is headed in this direction. Inevitably, certainly, absolutely, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all flesh, and the new creation enacted by Jesus. This is where we are going, Paul says. And secondly, Paul is giving his readers and us confidence about that day. But the confidence that Paul has here for the Philippians is not fundamentally connected to his assessment of the moral quality of this church or the individuals in it. His confidence, rather, is rooted in the character and person of God. God is the one who began a good work in them, Paul says. God is the one who has united them to his Son and made them holy in Christ. And so God, by his Spirit, is the one who will complete his work in them on the day of Jesus Christ. John Calvin comments on this passage and writes of the way in which God's faithfulness is our assurance as we look forward to the last day. He says, therefore, Calvin says, let believers exercise themselves in constant meditation upon the benefits of God that they may encourage and confirm hope for the future and always ponder in their mind this syllogism. Calvin, of course, was trained as a lawyer. He likes a good syllogism. First point of the syllogism, Calvin says, God does not forsake the work which his own hands have begun as the prophets bear witness. God does not forsake his work. First point. Second point. We are 
the work of his hands. Therefore, he will complete, Calvin says, the work that he has begun in us. Beloved, your hope for the future is not in any sense fundamentally rooted in you. In your faithfulness, in your good intentions, in your commitment to following through. No, fundamentally, your hope for the future and for the day of Christ itself is rooted in the character and faithfulness of God. The God who has claimed you. The God who has united you to his Son. The God who is, even now, as we prayed this morning, purifying you by the consuming fire of his Holy Spirit, that you might be changed into the image of Jesus himself. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Notice also that Paul is emphasizing that in some sense, God's work in us as his people will remain incomplete until the final day of Jesus. Right Without the appearing of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment, God's work in us is not yet done. That is its conclusion, its completion. But on that day, on the day of Christ, God will bring all things to an end. He will perfect us on that day. And we can trust him to keep that promise. Paul then goes on in verse 7 to explain in further detail why he is so thankful, joyful, and confident in the future that God has for his readers. It is because, he says, that they are partakers with him of grace. They partake of the same grace he does. And again, the root word in the Greek here is the same as in verse 5. It's koinonia. Paul understands himself to have a fundamental connection, a communion with the Philippian church that is not based on mere good, warm feelings, but rather a common partnership in the proclamation of the gospel and a common participation in the grace of God that is shown forth in Jesus. In every way, see, it is Jesus that ties Paul to his readers, to the church in Philippi. And it is Jesus that ties us to one another in the church as well. We share a common life together, not just because we all like each other. In fact, we might not always like each other, but because God has bound us together in his son, in Christ. And this koinonia, this fellowship, this common participation in grace, Paul tells his reader, readers, has given him an affection for them that is far deeper than mere warm or nice feelings. For God is my witness, Paul declares in verse 8. God is my witness. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Right? He doesn't just say, I yearn for you. My own heart longs for you. No, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ himself. Notice how Paul frames his love for the Philippians in language that reflects his union with Jesus. That great doctrine that he learned from his Lord himself on the road to Damascus. You see, Jesus is the vine and Paul is the branch. And this means, as Paul writes to the Galatians, that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. 
And so in some fundamental way, Paul's love for the Philippians is actually Jesus inside him loving the Philippians. It's the life of Christ himself such that he can truly say, because of his union with Christ, that he yearns for the Philippians, not with his own affection, his own love, but with the affection, the love of Jesus. It is actually Jesus who is yearning and having affection for these brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in verses 8 to 11, Paul brings these words in this section of his letter to a joyful conclusion. He describes in detail exactly what he is praying for, for the church in Philippi. And this is fascinating. Friends, as you hear these words, you might ask yourself, is this the kind of way that I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is this how I pray for my family members, for my children, for my parents, for my siblings? I would suggest that Paul is giving us a model here for how we actually ought to pray for one another, the kinds of things that we should pray for each other. Paul says, and it is my prayer, this is his prayer, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's the day of Christ again. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, notice the fundamental telos, the fundamental direction and goal of Paul's prayer. He is praying for the Philippian church that they might be fully prepared. Fully ready for the day of Christ when it comes. That they might be ready for the resurrection of the dead this certain conclusion to their experience and the final judgment and the life of the new creation. That and the most important part of this preparation, Paul says as he prays for them, is that they would grow in their love. That's what he prays for them, that your love would abound more and more. See, love is the foundation of all that Paul desires for them. It's what gives them their knowledge and discernment that he wants for them, their approval of what is excellent. It is their love that abounds, that, is, that leads to their purity and their blameless, blamelessness rather, on the day of Jesus Christ, their Lord. May your love abound more and more, Paul says. Certainly he means their love for God, but also their love for one another. Paul fundamentally here wants the Philippians to love one another as he loves them with the affection of Jesus. Jesus actually working in them to love each other. And in this way, they will be fully ready for the day of Christ. They will be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from their living union with Jesus. A fruit that can only be described as this, as love. Love for God. Love for their sibling in Christ. And so, beloved, this is the final and great test as we consider our preparation, our readiness for the day of Jesus Christ. Is your love abounding more and more? Is your heart soft toward God 
Are you ready to love your brother or your sister? Are you ready to forgive? Is your union with Jesus growing within you the love of Jesus for those around you? May it be so, friends. And may we, by the grace of God, be those who are indeed prepared by the consuming fire of the Holy Spirit for the telos of history, the fulfillment of time, that certain future that awaits us. May we be those who are being made pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes only in this way, through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Indeed, may we be those whom our Lord Jesus remembers in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. For he who began a good work in us has made us this promise that he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so this is indeed the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we thank you for this passage in Philippians. We pray that by your Spirit, you will apply it to our hearts. You will focus our attention on the reality, the certain promise of the day of your Son, and that by your Spirit, Father, you indeed might continue and ultimately bring to completion that work which you have begun to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.